here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of tonight's devotion is Unity in Unbelief. Unity in Unbelief. We're going to be turning to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 is where we'll have our devotion tonight. And as I was thinking about unity and unbelief, because what we'll see is that there's a group of people representing everybody on earth so far as I can tell, although there's a little bit of disagreement about that. But from the plain text, at least, at least our English translations, it appears to be every person on earth is united. United in one place, united with one language, but united by something else, which is tragic. United, with, united in unbelief. United in an op- opposition or rebellion or rejection of God. Now, it can't be universally true of absolutely everybody that was there because in the very next chapter, we see the call of Abraham chapter 12 of Genesis, we see that there was at least one man who was operating by faith. He obviously learned it from somebody. So there was a few people who, at a minimum, were still trusting what God said, taking God at his word, putting and finding their confidence in him. But this period of history was marked by this unity collectively, just as a general rule for society, a unity though, unity and unbelief. And as I thought about that, actually a song came to my mind which is a lovely song in terms of how it sounds, but when you actually look at the lyrics, it's actually an anthem of unity that is being called for, unity though in unbelief. Unity in man has a better idea of things than God does. And how many of you young people, I was just curious about this, uh, raise your hands if, if you're, well, I guess everybody, raise your hands though if you've ever heard of the Beatles. Okay, a lot of you young people have. There was a, they were a band, some of you who don't know about them, they were a band that operated, there's four musicians that came together, a very famous band. They were together for about 10 years, from 1960 to 1970. And to this day, they remain the best-selling musicians of all time, and it's not even really close. That's how popular they have been from 1960 until now. Now, question, just because you might be popular for the last, let's call it, uh, 60 60 some years does that mean anything in the grand scheme of the timeline of humankind not really does it mean anything in the grand scheme of eternity not really but they're celebrated as this very famous band who had many different hits while they were together for that 10 years and they sold millions and millions of records by some estimates i think it was somewhere around 500 or 600 million records. And so as you think about their popularity, one of the primary songwriters for that band, the Beatles, was named John Lennon. And he wrote a a song in 1971 shortly after the band broke up, and the song was called Imagine. And it sold millions of copies. It's been covered by over 200 other recording artists. I'm not talking about just people who happen to cover the song while they're playing at, in a bar or they're playing at a festival or something like that. I'm talking about recording artists that have, have recorded or copy or done a copy of, they call it um, a cover, of his song, Imagine, 200 other recording artists. This was the theme song for last year's, 20, actually two years ago, 2022, the Winter Olympics. Imagine was the theme song for that Olympics. It's listed as one of the top three songs of all times, of all time, by influential music publication called Rolling Stone. Now, you may not be that interested in it, but suffice it to say, of all time, top three of all time, this song called Imagine. 
And the song was very popular because it calls for unity and it calls for peace amongst all people. And so people have really taken to the song because it speaks to this idea of let's all get together, let's all be unified. And the chorus of the song says, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So the theme of the song is unity, but unity at what cost? Unity around what? Because the problem is that it calls for unity, the song calls for unity, but at the expense of truth. Because the song asks the listener to imagine, that's why it's called imagine, imagine a world of unity, but it's a world of unity according to John Lennon because there will be no religion, there'll be no heaven, there'll be no hell, there'll just be people living for today. And that's what we'll have unity around. We'll all be together as one, just living for today. It's no different than eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's, it's a more modern spin on a very old theme, which is that we just live for today. There isn't anything more than today, and today is all that matters. Now, is that what the Bible teaches young people, that there's no heaven, there's no hell, that we only live for today? Come on, we should be a little bit louder than that. No! <laughs> no, thanks, Calvin. Way to go for it. Okay. No, it's not what the Bible teaches. And so you have a call for unity, but at the expense of truth. And the, the idea of unity in unbelief is nothing new. The Bible reveals that mankind defaults by nature to rejection and rebellion against God, and that's ultimately driven by a common problem that mankind has with pride, thinking too highly of himself, thinking so highly of himself that he says, in, in essence, I'm just like God or I am my own God or I don't need God in any way because I'm fully sufficient in and of myself. Now, if that's the natural default that we would always come to a place, humankind, by nature, in their association with the thinking and the behavior of the, the, uh, driven by Satan and the sin nature, being in the realm of Adam, being associated with a birth in Adam, that we would have this natural tendency to have a rebellion and rejection of God, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And if, if that's the default, then there's always going to be unity, but it's unity that's driven by unbelief. And that's where we get our title from here tonight. And ultimately that, again, is just pride on display, but one clear illustration of this cooperative mentality of prideful unbelief, it's found in Genesis 11. And most of you are familiar with it, but maybe you didn't realize that that's what this story stands for. That man would have an alternative way to try to deal with the eternal matters, deal with eternal matters, celebrate himself versus to put himself in a proper place of humility and, and arrange himself under God in a sense of saying, I can't fix this problem that I have. I need to trust God to lead and direct. I need to take God at his word. I, I need to realize that I'm hopeless and I'm helpless and I'm hellbound unless God can do something to rescue me. And instead, they defaulted to this mindset universally as a cooperative society. They defaulted to this mindset that effectively said, we don't need to trust God. We don't have to heed God. We don't have to listen to God's word. We can do this our way. And so that's what this story, Genesis 11, about the Tower of Babel is really all about. So let's take a look at it. It's nine verses long. And let's just read through our story here, and then we're going to break it down a little bit. Genesis 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. 
Then they said to one another, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth." So as we get into this, let's first look at the first couple of verses here. And the idea I want you to take away from these first two verses is that sticking together represented rebellion. Sticking together represented rebellion. Rebellion against what? Rebellion against God. So we see that now the whole earth had one language and one speech and it came to pass as they journeyed, they found this plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there, dwelt there how? Dwelt there together. So we have the whole earth They had one language and one speech, and they were dwelling together. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that wasn't God's plan. You see, following the flood, God intended the whole earth to be repopulated. Turn back two chapters to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. I just want you to see that that was God's plan. God wasn't forcing anyone to do that, obviously. But that was his plan, and it was stated by him in the form of a blessing. This is actually intended to be a blessing, but it represents God's stated will. And it says this in Genesis 9.1, So God blessed Noah and his sons. So this is a blessing, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And depending on the translation, other translations make it even clearer that to fill the earth was to spread out, to spread out over the earth, to cover the earth. Now, is that what man has done here? No, man has ignored God. It says, instead of spreading out over the whole earth, it says the whole earth, meaning all of the collective group of people, the whole earth had one language and one speech and they were dwelling together. They were finding a perfect place to stay together. And so, instead of traveling and spreading out, They were living together. And one aspect of sticking together was that they had this common language on earth. And you see that there in the first verse. Now, one of the things that jumped out at me as I was thinking about this common language is would that necessarily have had to be a bad thing? Kids, would having a common language with every person on earth, would that have to have been a bad thing? No. Did, Did God say when he said to spread out and to repopulate the earth, that he said, and learn new languages and separate yourself with new languages? No, he didn't say that at all. Could it have been very beneficial to the communication about truth and conversations about truth and written records of truth? Could it have been very convenient for everybody to actually have the same language? Yeah, I mean, just common sense, right? Has it represented a challenge Nothing that God couldn't overcome, but has it represented a challenge that even today there are people groups who don't have the Bible translated into their own language? Is that a challenge to spreading God's truth? Yeah. Is God bigger than that? Yeah, he is bigger than that. And people are actively still working 
on translating the Bible into other languages. We used to have a missionary come here when I was a kid named John White. His wife's name was Lynn. We actually still support her as a church, even though she's retired. But John and Lynn went to a, a people group, a group of people that didn't have the Bible in their own language. Part of what John did for many years was to contribute to the idea of translating the Bible in the New Testament specifically into the Gimme language in Papua New Guinea. And so that's just something to consider that it wasn't necessarily a bad thing if it had been taken advantage of in a spiritually beneficial way, but it wasn't. They used their common language and staying together, they used it as a way to exalt man instead of exalting God. So let's look at this next section, verses 3 and 4. Pride always results in self-focus. When you're focused on, when you're, when you're prideful, you're always going to be focused on yourself. So starting in verse 3 of Genesis 11, they said... So they're all together in verses 1 and 2. They have one common language. Now in verse 3, then they said to one another, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. So they had the technology, if you will, to build things. Now verse 4, and they said, come let us build ourselves a city, who's the focus here, themselves, and a tower whose top is in the heavens. There's a lot of argument about this, but most take the position that it represented a alternative form of religion besides putting their faith in Jehovah God alone, the one true God. It was a way to actually make God more like man so that God could come down and dwell amongst men was the idea and be more like men and they could be more like God. It was to muddy the distinction between a sovereign and set apart holy God and mankind, an immortal God and an eternal God and a finite and temporal man. But that's, again, there's a lot of debate about that. But that's not the point here. This is the point I want you to focus on that shows how prideful they were and how self-focused you are when you're prideful. They say this, what was the purpose in all this? Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So consider the focus of this language here. Let us, let us, let us make a name for ourselves. You see that three times. Let us in verse 4 to begin with, a little bit further down. Let us, or actually it starts in verse 3. Let us make bricks. Then verse 4, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And then the last one, let us make a name for ourselves. And this is not exalting God. This is the opposite of exalting God. This is putting the focus on man. See, God alone has a name that is great and should be exalted. Maybe you've heard of Psalm 148, verse 13, for the sake of time. I'm just going to read it to you, but it says, let them, meaning mankind, praise the name of the Lord. Whose name should you be wanting to lift up and exalt? Should you be wanting to make a name for yourself or being wanting to make a name for the Lord or lift up the name of the Lord? It says, for his name alone is exalted, the name of the Lord. Not make a name for yourself. His glory is above the earth and heaven. It's to see that God is very great and should be magnified and made bigger and lift Him up, which means to humble yourself and make yourself small. And it's the exact opposite of how man actually is lifted up or honored. This isn't how you go about being lifted up, at least not in God's eyes. God actually says that if you want to be honored by God, God honors a willingness to humble yourself. Matthew 23, 12 says, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Meaning, if you want to be, receive the praise of God, then you're going to humble yourself. You're going to make yourself smaller and make God bigger. Now, that's the exact opposite of what we do by nature and do in our flesh. When we want to be exalted, we try to make ourselves as big as possible. And God says, that's not the way to go about it. See, God gets the glory for any greatness he may produce in you on a human level because he is ultimately the one responsible. You see, you can't, even if you could make yourself great, make a name for yourself, which talents would it involve? How would you go about doing that? Which treasures would it involve? It would involve things that God has blessed you with ultimately anyway because every good thing is from above. The things that we have are a blessing from God. We didn't do anything to deserve those either. And so even if you were to be able to use those talents and those treasures, the time that you have to make a bigger name for yourself, ultimately who should still get the glory? Well, God should get the glory because he's the one who could give you a name of honor, a name that is respected. Now I'm going to show you two examples of that. One, turn to Genesis 12. We're in Genesis 11 here. God isn't against the idea of exalting mankind, but he's the one to do it. He doesn't need you. He doesn't want you to focus on exalting yourself. By being humble, he might honor you. But this is now talking about Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 2, I want you to read. He says, this is God's promise to Abraham. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. But he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, now catch this, and make your name great. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. A blessing to who? To everyone else. This is repeated in other places, but through you, through your seed, through your offspring, who happens to be who? Jesus. Every nation of the world will be blessed. That's where we have the ble- a blessing. We have a land that's promised to Abraham, a seed that's promised to Abraham. We have a blessing, a universal blessing of the whole world, which would come through Abraham, but it says, I will make your name great. Now, was that because Abraham was so full of himself? Because Abraham was doing such a good job at making his name great? No, it was because God said, I'll make your name great. He said the same thing about David too. In 2 Samuel 7, 9, he says, and I have been with you wherever you have gone. You know, when David started to forget about who his God was, God was quick to remind him, I've been with you. Wherever you've gone, I've been with you. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Now, who did that? God says he did that. David, though he was a king, God says you don't get to take credit for any exaltation or greatness your name may have. I'm the one who gave you all of those things and don't you forget it. Now, as we think about pride always resulting in self-focus, the other thing is there's a saying. Kids, the saying says, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. They're good, but they're misplaced intentions. What was the intention for building the city and putting, making a great name for themselves, building this tower? What was the motivation for this? Well, if we come back to our passage here, we see, come let us do this lest, at the bottom of verse four, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What were they hoping to avoid? Well, they were hoping to avoid the very thing that God had told them to do. That's what's sad about this. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now they saw that as a good thing, to avoid that. 
But how tragic is that? The one thing that God had wanted them to do or had expressed as his will for them to do, they're saying, we don't want that. That's the very thing we're concerned about. We don't, God forbid that that would happen. And in fact, that's God's will for their lives. That's God's desire. So settling together in Shinar was an act of disobedience. God had commanded men, maybe that's too strong of a word, God had expressed his desire in the form of a blessing that men would spread out and fill the land. Not that they would congregate in cities, but they likely thought that they were doing the right or the prudent thing. They, they were probably thinking about things like, what would be the value of staying together well, there'd be strength in numbers, right? You can accomplish many tasks through many hands make what? Light work. Many hands together could accomplish greater things. There'd be a greater sense of, of unity. People would stay together. Maybe they were even thinking about things like staying near family. Like that's not a bad thing, is it? No. So they were probably sincere in wanting to avoid scattering about. That was their fear, but that's what God wanted So they were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. Just because people are sincere or passionate about their beliefs doesn't make them right. God sets out the standard in his word of what is true and what is right. So we compare what is true and what is right or what what is claimed to be true and right to what God says is true and right and the trump card is always God's word. God's word is always the standard that we can rely upon. So they probably thought they were doing something that made sense or was prudent, but God says that they were wrong. You see, doing what God says, it involves faith. It involves trusting him even when you cannot see or understand or even when you're fearful about doing what God asked you to do. See, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. A walk of faith is to walk or follow or trust God as he leads and directs when you can't see what he's doing, when you don't know what he's doing, when you don't understand it, or at least even when that is true. That's what faith involves. So is faith kind of scary at times? Answer is yeah. God's leading us into the unfamiliar. Is that comfortable? No. He's leading us to those places that are uncomfortable. He's leading us to those places that are unknown. He's leading us into those places that we're not at peace really even in a sense because they're not our normal way of operating. But God's wanting to stretch us. He's wanting to direct us. He's wanting to use us in ways that our flesh would never dream of or never would even come up with. And that's what trusting God involves. In Abraham's case in chapter 12, it involved following God as God led him to a place he didn't even know where God was leading him. Was that hard? Did that, was that counterintuitive? Did that go against maybe his, his inner sense of what a prudent thing to do would be? Probably, but he, he saw or he, he viewed God's plan as, as more favorable and more reliable and more trustworthy than anything he could come up, up with. And he was willing to step out by faith, even though he had his stumbles along the way, just like everyone does. See, these men, they must have known of God's expressed desire that they would fill the whole earth and worship him alone, but that was scary, and God seemed elusive apart from faith. There's this sense here that they're struggling to have this personal, intimate walk of faith with the Lord, and it's based on their actions here. 
Now, especially if you take this tower to represent a, an alternative religious effort, an alternative religion, an alternative view of God or a way to think of God differently than the true God, the way, he, the way God should have been worshipped. If you see it that way, then you're going to see that they were having trouble getting their hands on and wrapping their minds around and trusting in, accepting God, taking God at his word. And so instead of trusting something that they couldn't see, which was the very definition of faith, they decided instead to trust something that they could see, which was bricks and mortar. They could see that. If we make God into a tower, if we make God into an idol carved with hands, then we can see that. We're struggling to see God, so we'll make God into something of our own creation so that we can get a hold of it a little bit easier. You see, is, that, is there horrible motives behind something like that? Well, not necessarily other than God, of course, hates the idea of people turning from Him, but the reason for people is somewhat natural is that they're struggling with faith. Because they're struggling with faith, they come up with something else to trust in that in their mind's eye is either easier to grab onto and visualize than God Himself. Now, it's to their own peril. It's, it's folly on their part, but yet that's what they're, they're doing. So they trusted in bricks and, and mortar, in buildings made by hand, instead of the God of the universe. And that's sad. But I was thinking about this as they exchanged God's truth for something that they could see. And I thought, what seen things, we're talking about seen things now, are you trusting instead of God? Kids, as you sit here tonight, where is your confidence as you think about trusting God, confidence? Where is your confidence coming from? Is it coming from your parents that you can see, your bed that you can see, your home that you can see, the money that you can see in that jar that you've got hidden in the corner of your room? Is your confidence coming in from the stability that's all around you? Is it coming from being alive in this place in history, in this country? Is, is your confidence coming from the police department, the army, the strength of the military might of the United States? Adults, ask yourself the same questions. Where is your confidence coming from? Are you finding confidence in the things you can see instead of the God that you can't? Is that, is that what you're defaulting to, that your trust is actually in human-created things? It's in your own wisdom, your own understanding, your own bank account, your own building, your own pro whatever protection you can provide for yourself. Are you finding your confidence in that instead of finding your confidence in God's provision to meet your every need? See, that's what these people were doing. They were confused. They weren't trusting God, so they started to trust something that was built by hand that they could see. Now let's go to verses five and six. God is unimpressed. That's a short version of this. God is unimpressed with man's independence, with man's rebellion and rejection of him. Verse, read verse five. Verse five says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they, have, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. So they don't use that for good. They don't use it to worship the Lord. They use it to rebel against the Lord, whether through the creation of a false religion or through a rebellion against God's stated desire that they would populate and spread out over the whole world. Either way, that's what they're doing with this common language instead of using it for good. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. It's kind of confusing language there. We'll touch on it in a second. But... As a method of storytelling, the narrator, who is believed 
well, it's Moses who wrote these first books of the Bible. Now, where did he, where did he get the, you know, get the story from? It was Moses comes later in human history than this. So it was a, a story that he either got from God himself or was passed down through people of faith as he, you know, through Abraham and his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and, and so forth, till you get to the exodus from Egypt. You get Amram and Jochebed still being men and women of faith despite living as slaves in Egypt. But that's neither here nor there, I guess. But as, you, as a way of telling the story, the narrator, Moses here, personifies God's response. I want you to see that it's a, it's a storytelling method. It, it, it in no way undermines or calls into question God's sovereignty or omniscience. The narrator here is using irony and satire to tell the story of man's falling. Some people take this passage and they're like, see, here's evidence that God isn't actually sovereign. Here's evidence right here that God doesn't actually, he's not omniscient. He doesn't actually know everything that's going on. He needed to kind of find out about it after everything had kind of fallen apart. He, he found out about it, about it after the fact and then had to do something about it. Like, like God has to be like a person and he has to, you know, walk down on human legs. He has to walk down from heaven to check on the affairs of men, some of which catch him by surprise. That's what people have actually done with this passage, but it's just a storytelling style. It's a, where to, it's a way to narrate this story to show how foolish man is. See, the, the takeaway is that man's efforts, no matter how lofty they might be, they're insignificant to God. From God's perspective, this grand building endeavor was nothing more than a tiny tower conceived by way of a tiny plan and carried out by tiny people. This was nothing grand to God. God is infinite. He's limitless. No mud and clay brick put together city or tower is going to impress God. God, God wasn't surprised by this in the sense that he didn't know what was going on. This is just a way to make the story more relatable and we call it, yeah, we call it personification when we take human qualities and we apply them to God as a way of making God more relatable or to understand what happened here. The idea is that God noticed what was going on and God was not impressed. That's your takeaway from this. And God says this, indeed the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. You see, God was not concerned about man's grand building plan. That wasn't what was concerning God here. He was concerned about the mentality and the thinking that accompanied it. God saw the seed of evil growing, and he knew where it would lead. So he stepped into history and intervened again as he had done at times in the past, including as he stepped into human history. In, in this case of the flood that we just covered with Noah most recently. Now, I want you to know this about God intervening. He sees where this is going because this is all behavior that is pointing to an independent mindset. It's all pointing to rejection and rebellion against God. It's all pointing to we don't need God kind of thinking. So God's going to step in again. Now, last time he stepped in, he destroyed the whole world, but he provided a way of rescue for eight souls, Noah and his family. He made a way of rescue available that we looked at, that God alone could save from the judgment that man deserved. But now God made a promise to Noah, didn't he, that he would never destroy the whole world again. Here we have, as far as I can tell, the whole world again in a place of rebellion and rejection against God, and God notices. 
he says, boy, we're going down the same road we just went down. Now, how long after the worldwide flood, Noah's flood, how long after that is this story taking place, kids? How long do you think it took to get back to this spot? Not long. Any guesses? 4,000 years, no. 400 years, no. 40, more than 40. More than one, because it's more than 40. More than 50, less than 400. More. Okay, I'll help you. 100 years. Okay, now I'm not a Bible scholar, but according to a chart of the history that is put out, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's a famous timeline of human history. It's something that I read about in a book from the Answers in Genesis uh, people. They say roughly 100 years is what it's estimated. Now, just ask yourself, how many generations does it take for something to have been a lesson freshly learned and for mankind to have forgotten about it? A generation or two, one or two generations. How, How long has this church been going on for? How long? 80? Yeah, somewhere, somewhere between 60 and... We said that we had a 50-year anniversary, what, 10, 15 years ago? So somewhere between, let's just call it 60 and 80 years. Depends on where you're going to start the clock or whatever. But that's, that's about half of this 100 years, right? And so if we're not careful, if we don't keep lifting up God's truth if we don't keep remembering these lessons that others have learned or should have learned ahead of us, we're going to be in the same spot where all of a sudden we've substituted man's knowledge and man's wisdom for God's truth. And we're now trusting ourselves or trusting our society, our collective wisdom. We're having unity and unbelief instead of unity and belief. That could happen to us too. So it's something that we have to be on guard or thinking about. Now, the thinking behind this enterprise was the same as in the garden. It was the same as the thinking of Cain that we looked at. It was the same as the people in Noah's day. It was an attitude of independence. It was an attitude that said, because we've seen all those stories recently in this, in this series, kids, but whether it was what happened with Adam and Eve accepting Satan's lie or it was Cain saying, I know a better way than God does or it was the people in Noah's day saying they only thought and did evil continuously all the time. They wouldn't accept God's way of rescue or God's salvation. Despite Noah being a preacher of righteousness, eight people responded and went through the one door that God made available for salvation and rescue. Okay, that's the story of human, human beings. Apart from God, apart from trusting God, it's just to operate with this attitude of independence. Now, what is man really saying? They're saying, we don't need to trust God. We don't need to revere God or hold, hold God in esteem or hold God with, uh, have a respect for God. We don't need to heed God's word. We don't need to listen to what God says. We can be like God. We can substitute our own wisdom and truth for his wisdom and truth. That's really what's being said here again. We can substitute our wisdom and truth for God's truth, with God's wisdom and truth. We don't need to trust God. We don't need to take Him at His word. We don't need to listen to Him because we can be Him or we can come up with our own system of belief that is completely excludes Him. It's really sad. 
But despite that happening, God undertakes to rescue man from himself. Let's see how God responded to this. See, God wasn't threatened by man and what they were doing in any way. Man was tiny compared to what God was doing, but God still loved man. God was still concerned about the direction man was moving, and he wanted to make a way to save man from himself. So let's read the last few verses here. Verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all of the earth. So there you have it said twice that he scattered them over all the earth, the face of all the earth, which is what he had said was his plan and his will to begin with. This is my desire for you, and this was a blessing that you would heed that desire. But you thought you knew better, and what has it led to? It's led to another universal, in a sense, collective unity in unbelief and rebellion and rejection against me. That's what it's led to. And so... God undertakes to rescue man from himself. God accomplishes his original instructions with some supernatural prompting. You know the song Hornets that we sing at Camp Kids? The Hornets persuaded them that it was best. He will not compel us to go. No, no. (laughs) But he just makes them willing to go, right? And that's what happened here in a sense. His God scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth with a little bit of prompting. And he did this by confusing their language. Now, ironically, the purpose of the building was to avoid this very outcome. Man's whole purpose in this passage was to avoid the very thing that God wanted and the very thing that God chose or did in his love and in his grace, he did to save them from the kind of judgment that happened in terms of the earth by way of the flood. Now, that just is a testimony, though, to God intervening to protect them from destruction. God's concern here did not reflect some jealousy of humans, like they were somehow potential rivals to him, or they would come up with some alternative God that would usurp him. He's the only sovereign God. Instead, what we see here is God's concern reflecting his perfect love for people and his desire that they not succeed in establishing this memorial or this collective rejection, this memorial to their collective rejection of him. Like if they were to build this tower in this city that was exactly opposite of what he wanted, then every time they would even look at it, and especially if it involved an alternative God, an alternative worship system besides worshiping the true God, but every time they would see it, it would stand for this collective rejection of this people of the one true God, of his plan of redemption, of his way of rescue, of the truth that he said was the only truth that was available to man. It would stand for that. And so God didn't allow the project to continue. It was yet another one of many pictures of grace that we can see, another one of many pictures of love that we can see in God's word. Because that's how God responded, was to effectively rescue man from himself and to not allow this to go any farther. Now, as a byproduct of that, we'll fast forward to chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see Abraham described as a man of faith. So, faith, in enduring faith in Jehovah God and his provision for man's sinfulness preserved through this. Instead of this being the end of the story, it wasn't because God spared mankind that. 
And he scattered them so the effect would be that some people would take some truth or respond to that truth and it would remain and, and stay in effect at least up until the time of Abraham and then it would continue thereafter all the way to the point where you and I sit here today, hopefully as men and women of faith. So we have unity and unbelief. What began as unity ends in confusion. Why? Because it was unity that was celebrating a common rejection and rebellion and unbelief in God. So rightfully so or poetically so, the story begins with they all have one purpose and it ends with they're all confused and separated. They can't understand one another either. And this is true of every enterprise that excludes God. Any, any way of thinking that purports to be God's truth or purports to be true that excludes God, it ultimately leads to confusion. It doesn't lead to truth. It doesn't lead to clarity. It doesn't lead to purpose. It doesn't lead to contentment. It doesn't answer questions that mankind has about who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? It doesn't answer those questions because God alone has the answers to those questions. It doesn't fill man with hope because it's hopeless without God included in it. So that's how every enterprise ends if God's not a part of it. Now think about your lives. Kids, as you grow older, as you tackle different things in life that seem good, they seem appropriate, they seem like the thing to do at the time, if you're to tackle those things but exclude God's truth or do it in spite of God's truth or do it in rejection of God's truth or do it without God involved, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to lead you to be confused when it's all said and done. Adults and collectively as a church, anything that we undertake that's not rooted and grounded in God's truth is going to end in confusion. It's going to end in disaster. And that's a takeaway that we should have from it. But here again, we see God revealing that salvation is conditioned on faith. See, this is all about God alone can save, but God can't save people if they refuse to accept his truth, if they refuse to trust him, if they refuse to take him at his word. And so mankind thought they could bypass God, they didn't need God, they could be their own God. And here's an example of trying to come to God or approach God on different terms besides what God has laid out. And it ends in confusion because man cannot save himself. Man cannot bypass God. Man is entirely dependent on God and his gracious provision for him. So that's where we're going to end here tonight. Yet another example, though, I hope you see this, of only God's way is going to be the way that can save. Even man's best plans, man's best ideas, even if they're rooted in sincerity, even if they seem like a good idea at the time, if they exclude God, that way is not going to be prosperous. And in a sense, as God looks down at the affairs of man, looks down at man's alternative perspective, we saw in Psalm 2, not that long ago, but earlier on in our series in Psalms, we saw that it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And these are people who are trying to fight against God's plans. It's God is just laughing at that. There's no, there's no way to do that, come up with an alternative plan that, ex that excludes God and at the same time ex expect that that's going to be successful.
All right, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together. Thank you for this meal we're about to enjoy and share. Thank you for all the hands that prepared it. Thank you that we even have one another. We get to be a part of a, a local body of believers as, as part of the universal truth that finds its expression in local churches that are all over the world. Thank you that you've designed things that way. Pray that we would be encouraging to one another, that we'd be lifting up and edifying one another, that we would come together for the better, not for the worse. Pray that you would always take center stage that the spotlight would always be on you when we gather, that we would want to live our lives in a way that lifts you up, that we wouldn't come up and lean on our own understanding, come up with clever ideas, come up with ways to bypass you, come up with ways to live independent of you. Pray that we would want to just collapse in complete rest, faith, and dependence on you to lead and direct. We would take you at your word and trust that what you say is true and that what you say is for our best, that we would just simply walk by faith and accept what your plan is for our lives and accept that we can't do it apart from you and that you're the one who's going to have to empower us and work in us. 